you folks have been learning a lot about my leisure activities over the past few weeks. Uh, so I thought I'd continue that trend by uh, saying that I've been trying to work hard on my garden this year. Uh, and one of the things that has frustrated me is that although the front yard, the previous owner we bought uh, now is about four years ago, uh, had done some initial work and it was quite nice and so all I really did was spruce it up and add a few plants here and there and try to maintain it. Uh, the backyard was another story. It's basically a sort of a, a lump of grass. And as many of you have been frustrated here in Barhaven, I'm sure in the same way that I have, uh, grubs have been getting at that stupid lawn so that now what it really is is a giant patch of weeds. So I was thinking, I'm going to make a big change. And so the, the yard's not very big. I'm going to put some, some flowers in and do something. But where I found really difficult in the spring was just getting started. Like, I don't even know where to start. Uh, and I kept getting tripped up. What plant should I buy? And, and uh, as it uh, happens, I was in a, a store, and uh, one of these thrift stores, and looked through their book section. And for a dollar, there was a book on gardening. So I thought, well, that couldn't hurt. So I bought it, and it was actually tremendously helpful, not because it said necessarily what plants to buy. Why it was helpful was it said the first thing you really need to do is step back and think, what do you really want? Do you want to have a, a, a space where you can just look at it and not walk amongst it? Do you want to have a space where you can cut a bunch of flowers to bring inside? Do you want something that's evergreen so you can look at it in the wintertime? And then plan it out based on that. It was tremendously helpful and probably most obvious to all of you, but when you have a goal where you're going for, it makes it so much easier to make decisions and take activities because you're not just doing work in the garden, you're moving and progressing towards a goal and you have that vision in front of you and it motivates you and also helps you decide how to make uh, certain actions and which ones are most important. Now the lesson you get from gardening is not just a gardening lesson, it's a general life lesson and particularly it's a lesson in Christian life. And I raise that because today we're continuing our series on St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in the uh, portion of Ephesians that you heard today read, St. Paul's continuing on some of the things that we talked about last week, but about talking about our, uh, the importance of why we do the things we do in church. He gives us certain things we should do, certain rules to follow, but what's most important, I think, and what I wanted to make sure I put focus on is that he says, all of this is not simply because I've given you a list of rules. Instead, he ends the section by explaining why he's trying to tell these people the things they need to do. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Everything that Paul is saying here is for this reason, to help one another become more like Christ. And how do we do that? making a decision ourselves to be more like Christ in the way we live our lives publicly, the way that we live our lives in our Christian life together as a church, and the way that I live our lives in everyday existence. So I'd like to speak to you today about how we grow into Christ and help each other grow into Christ, but I'd also like to speak to you today about why this is in fact a delight, because it can seem very much like taking up your cross, doing things for other people is just another a heartbreaking, backbreaking task. We must grit our teeth and bear it through, instead of, in fact, a joy that brings great blessing to us in the process. So before I get right into the, the, the weeds, just a, a sort of a recap about what we've been doing. Ephesians is a letter that, of course, includes individual instruction, but as we've been looking through Ephesians, I hope it's become clear that Ephesians is a book that has a particularly strong focus on community and what Christian community looks like. In chapter 2, a few weeks ago, I preached on how Paul uh, talks about the beauty of Christian community and the people he's writing to, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles 
who normally wouldn't want anything to do with one another. A deep history of division, really uh, serious reasons to, to dislike each other, not to want to be with each other. But what a miracle, he says, this community even exists, and it's by the grace and power of Christ, the great reconciler, that you even exist together. Celebrate that and show that to the world. In chapter 3, Paul starts talking about how great it is that he is a, a person who's able to reveal this, that God has always planned this, that through the Old Testament, God's plans have been uh, hinted at, and now it's become clear in Jesus to include the Gentiles, that is to say the non-Jews, into the community of uh, Israel so that they can experience the same closeness with God that Israel did. Then when we get into chapter 4, he starts talking about how the implications of this unity should be lived out. So we talked about that last week, and it's particularly about how we are to speak the truth in love, that truth is a, a highly important way in which we build each other up and, and live out community life. St. Paul there talked about growing to the full stature of Christ and growing up into his head, but there's a different flavor to the words that Paul uses in this latter half of chapter 4. And I think as I read a little bit earlier about where Paul is heading with this, it gives us an idea about why he says it in a different flavor than he did in the other part. He talks about growing into the full stature of Christ, but here he focuses on a very particular uh, part of what Christ's ministry is about. Listen again to what I said uh, a moment earlier from chapter 2, or actually verse 2 of chapter 5. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The emphasis Paul places on here in community life is the emphasis on a life of sacrifice for the sake of others instead of living for the sake of yourself. And one of the greatest things you notice when you look at Jesus' ministry is not just the wise sayings he gives or the miracles he, he undertakes, but it's the sacrificial character of Jesus' life. Think about the, the common sayings Jesus will often speak about. He'll often say things like, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will never produce fruit. He talks about death and about rebirth. A, a, a grain dies and fruit results. Or Jesus will say, those who love their life and wish to preserve it will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will gain eternal life. That theme of death and of life keeps coming up. It's a similar sort of theme when Jesus is tempted in the desert. Uh, Jesus is fasting for 40 days. The devil comes and says, you're hungry. It's a legitimate concern. Turn these stones into bread. What harm would it do? And Jesus responds by saying, um, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here in John's gospel, we just heard the gospel lesson. Uh, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven. And of course, most supremely, Jesus says, uh, when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he is to die, he knows what's coming up. He's seen crucifixions before. He knows it means public flogging, public shaming, jeering of the crowds, painful death. What a no normal thing to wish not to have this. But he prays on the night before he's to be betrayed, God, I do not want this. I do not want to be tortured to death, but not my will but yours be done. And he dies. And what do we celebrate at Easter? The central fact of Christian life is that Christ is raised from the dead. His sacrifice brings life to other people. Paul in this section says this is not just a thing Christ does for us. This is also a model for us to live out. And here are ways in which we help other people live it out. That's why you'll notice Paul is talking so often in contrasts when he uh, talks, about this, or talks about it in this section of Ephesians. Um, you might think, well, Paul's giving us a bunch of rules, but it's not just rules. He is also giving a lots of distinctions. He says, put away falsehood and speak the truth. He says, 
Be angry, but do not sin, and let, uh, do not let the sun go down in your anger. He says, um, uh, also speaks about how it is that thieves should give up stealing and instead labor for the benefit of others. And he talks about how we are to uh, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and instead be kind to one another. You may think, well, this is just a poetic device. I mean, after all, when you think about rules, you go to the swimming pool and it might say, uh, as it always does on the front, you know, don't run around, don't do any horseplay, make sure you have a shower before you get into the pool. It doesn't say, uh, you know, put away from you all running tendencies and take up the tendency to lope uh, slowly around. Or to sort of say, you know, uh, put away from you all bodily uncleanness and cleanse thyself in the shower. Well, it's just like flowery poetic words, but Paul isn't doing this. Paul is contrasting an old way of life that is geared on what I want and contrasting the way of life that is the way of life that Jesus displays. A way of life not devoted to my will, but a way of life devoted to the will of the Father. And this is something he says requires effort and is difficult and sacrifice, but in the end is a way that, that lives out the implications of what Christ has done for us. And so as he gives these different contrasts, what he's trying to say is don't live as if Christ didn't make a sacrifice for you. Instead, live as if you really believe that Jesus showed you the way of life. So if we look, for example, at some of these, and I'll go through some of the examples Paul gives about how to live life in church, some of them are pretty obvious, uh, but highly important. He says, for example, about thieves in verse 28. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. I mean, think about what thievery is at its heart. I will enrich myself by taking from someone else. He says, that's an old way of thinking to be selfish enough to take from another person to enrich yourself. Instead, he says, there's a contrast. When you labor and enrich yourself with your own hands, it's a fundamentally different thing, but he goes beyond that. He says, the reason you labor for your hands is not just to avoid uh, uh, hurting another person. He says this, he says, so as to have something to share with the needy. Here's a way of life that is the way that Christ lives. I do things to enrich myself, not to enrich myself, but because it may be a source of blessing to other people. Think about, for example, the way that you enrich this community when you put a, a, a donation in the plate. I mean, you work hard. There's lots of things you could do. Perfectly legitimate to spend this morning having brunch. Lots of people do it. Brunch could be a good thing with your family. Why do you sacrifice your time? Why do you sacrifice your money and give it to the church? Well, you know one of the reasons? One of the reasons is because you know that God gave you the skills and ability in your labor not simply to make a good life for yourself, but that you might have an opportunity to bring a good life to another person. You know, it's interesting, just this week and coming weekend, I'll be doing a wedding for a, a young woman who I don't, wouldn't have known except that her grandma uh, and grandpa lived at the court here in Barhaven. And so uh, each month you pay for me to go to a nursing home and do a service for people who can't go to church and who easily get forgotten. Her and her husband attended the church, although, or attended the service, though they're Presbyterian. And one day I get a call from the woman's daughter saying, my dad just had a stroke and he's in the hospital. Can you come and see him? What you have given in your time and your effort and your money meant that I had a relationship with this couple and this older man had the opportunity to have someone come and pray with him to provide comfort to his family because of what you've done. Now I'm doing a wedding for her granddaughter who probably would have just gone and got a justice of the peace to do something but instead says, I want Christ to be part of my marriage and I'm invited to do it. 
What a wonderful gift. And that's a gift that comes because of the labor of your hands. Do you understand when you're laboring and thinking, this is so I can build a big house for myself, there's nothing wrong of having a house for your family. But how much more ennobling it is and how much more of a blessing to think, think of the great things I can do for this world if, if I take what I've been given and what I'm doing to earn and give it to others. Now, this may not seem so difficult for us. I mean, probably looking out at you, there's not many of you, I think, right now are planning a bank heist, right? It's like, well, I don't need to put away my thieving. Uh, and that's probably not such a rock-hard thing that you have to worry about. But I'll tell you, there's another thing that St. Paul is talking about that, frankly, is a tremendously challenging thing. And that's his speech about anger. He says this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Anger is sometimes justified. It's not a black and white like thieving is always wrong, but sometimes anger is the right thing. I told you a few weeks ago that I had read about a new scandal uh, that's, that's emerged in the Roman Catholic Church in, in the States about a child abuse situation that got covered up by people above. That should make us angry. When we see injustice happen, when we hear about the residential schools and, and how children were abused and culture taken away, that should make us angry. Jesus himself got angry in the temple when he saw pilgrims being fleeced instead of being encouraged to come and worship the Lord regardless of what they can pay. And of course also other times it may not be righteous anger, but it may be justified. Maybe a person was really rude to us or really let us down in some way. It's natural as a human being. And so what is Paul criticizing? He's not criticizing the natural response of anger. You know what he's criticizing? He's saying it's an old way of life, not, uh, that anger is not just the old way of life. The old way of life is to hold on to that anger and demand the natural thing. I want to get my pound of flesh to pay this person back for what they did. I remember reading about uh, Mackenzie King, one of uh, Canada's prime ministers, uh, who was the wartime prime minister and did some good things, but also a person of low character because uh, it emerged when we looked at uh, some of his letters and private memoirs, every perceived slight or insult against him was written down so that at some point in the future he could get somebody back. And he was notorious for that, never letting anything go. Now that may say, well, that's politics as usual, but how damaging it is to a church and to intimate relationships you have in marriage, uh, amongst your family, amongst your friends in a church. What's the natural thing we do? It's interesting because Paul here, when he says, don't give room for the devil, and he talks about the way that uh, the, you know, evil spirits or the evil in this world can take hold of things and, and run with it, he chooses a very specific term. He could have said uh, uh, the evil one, as Jesus sometimes says, or Satan, uh, as sometimes Jesus also mentions. He uses the word devil, and in Greek it's diabolos. Uh, it's translated as devil. You know what that means literally? It means slanderer. A slanderer is a person who speaks lies about another person in order to destroy their character. You know, just last week, uh, like, uh, we were speaking about the truth in love, and in our question period, Allison had mentioned uh, how it is that sometimes it's easier to speak the truth in love when you remember you don't really know why that person who hurt you did it. You know, maybe they're having a, a terrible migraine that day, or maybe it is that they're having real challenges in their marriage, or maybe they were forgetful because they're stressed out at work. Keep those in mind, and it makes it easier. But I can tell you there's, there's millions of reasons why a person might do something that harms you. One of those reasons could be they're a jerk who's got it in for you. You know what's interesting? Maybe you're different than me, but when somebody hurts me and I think, well, there's a million different possibilities, you know the one that my mind always gravitates to first? Well, clearly they did this because they're a jerk. 
right? Isn't that normal? We fill in the blanks. It's even harder uh, because uh, what St. Paul says is the slanderer, he fills these things in your mind to make you assume the very worst about a person who's done something to you. The longer you hold on to that, the more it is that this isn't just a person had a bad day and said something bad. It's this person is a jerk through and through. When you hold on to something in that bitterness, what does it do? It eats you up inside, but it also makes it so hard to speak with love to another person. It destroys the intimacy in a personal relationship. It destroys the intimacy in community in a church when you're incapable of living the new life that Christ had, who willingly forgives even those crucifying him. What we're talking about here, Paul says, is that the new humanity that Christ wants us to model in the church is a new humanity that says, I will take on the responsibility of dealing with this instead of simply sucking it up and letting it fester in my soul. Because sure enough, whether you actively take your pound of flesh or not, that relationship you have with others will be poisoned because it will end up destroying your vision of that person and making you far less willing, far less likely, far less uh, encouraged to love the other person in ways they need to be loved. Last thing I wanted to mention here, there's other things he does, but to point out also about the importance about the words that we say. Uh, the, 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 the importance of truth is so highly uh, important to St. Paul. He says in verse uh, 29, he says, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. In fact, again, giving you some Greek lessons here, but the word he uses is not just uh, evil. Uh, other translations note it more accurately, which is no corrupt talk or no rotten talk. It's almost as if he's giving a food analogy in which he says, just like um, your children may be being like my children. If I get them a, a, an apple that I want to put in their lunch and I slice it up, right, and I package it up and then it comes back at the end of the school day, I'm like, why didn't you eat this? Oh, it was a little brown. Doesn't look very appealing to them, even though it's quite good. But how much even more is that when you buy something like some fruit at the grocery store and you cut it up and you find it's all moldy and gross inside? You know very well you eat that thing and what's it going to do? It's going to make you sick. <clears throat> what happens though if you open a piece of fruit and it's, it, it's juicy, it's flavorful, it feeds your body. Are you thinking, says St. Paul, about the words you use? Are the truthful words speaking uh, the truth, he says, building other people up? We talked a little bit about the challenging words you have to say uh, when we spoke last week about the truth in love. Do you know what I find really interesting? is that it's understandable why it's hard to speak the truth about a really challenging thing. This is something that's affecting me negatively. It needs to change. I find that many people hesitate to say a positive thing that needs to be said. You know how wonderful it is in your life to find a person with the gift of encouragement? You sometimes meet those kind of people who almost have this, this, this and it is really, a, frankly, a supernatural ability that God gives to us to recognize the good in people and the good that they do. Sometimes a word of criticism needs to happen, but how wonderful it is when a person speaks to you and says, you know what, I've really noticed you're great at this. You really have a gift. That can change the entire course of a person's life. School teachers know this. You are in school and this person has a gift of math or a gift with language. How important it is to have a person say these words to you. I remember when I was uh, a younger man and I was uh, not really sure whether I wanted to be a, a, a priest and I hadn't any real experience public speaking, but I knew the Bible a little bit. And I used to volunteer at the Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver, which is uh, in the east end of Vancouver, and that's a pretty rough district. People would come, there would be a, f 
uh, food cupboard, they'd get some food, but there'd also be hot meals, and they'd also offer a chapel service every night. So you get different churches would come and they'd do a service and band and things. But the director there told me, every once in a while we get confused, somebody says they're gonna come and they don't. So one of us has to go up and, and speak and run the service. So one day, the person didn't show up, and I guess I was, I don't know, 20, something like that, and no experience. And he said, uh, you're on, Stephen, five minutes. So I've gotta come up with something to say. And it's tough because you're there, and uh, mostly you're fairly respectful and pay attention. Uh, but some of these rougher folks, you know, there's one person stretched out in the pew, sleeping off a hangover, and uh, there's another person who's just chatting with his neighbor. But I do remember, as nervous as it was, and I don't even remember what I said, one of the people afterwards came up and said, that was really, really good, thank you for that. You really have a gift. Now, I'm saying that not to build myself up, but it's to say, oftentimes, where people, you know, who live on the street, I mean, can be very devout believers, but, you know, addiction or bad family background or other things can waylay them and they can't, you know, sort of flourish in the way that you might hope them to. But here is a person with a gift of encouragement and, for good or ill, it's part of the reason I'm a priest today is that I felt people along my life uh, as I was developing encouraged this. How wonderful it would be in a community where you can be assured that not only will a person speak nice words to you because they want to flatter you, but they'll also speak uh, criticism if necessary, which gives them credibility and says, well, then when they say something good, they must really mean it and not just flattering me. You see, throughout all of these things, what St. Paul keeps pointing out is not just here's a list of rules, but it is to say, understand you need to transform your vision of what you are called to be and what this church is called to be. Not just here obey the rules, but it's to say, I don't want to just live the old life that's devoted to myself. I want to live the way of life that Christ lived. His life brought me life. I want to be an instrument that through Christ's power and grace brings life to other people. What a joy it is to be the person who knows because of Christ's work through you, the church and other people are being built up. Now I mentioned those things and about the, the ways that we are to live in greater unity by following Christ and the example of sacrifice, but I wanted to end with what I think is a real encouragement to how we find ourselves blessed by doing this. And I wanna give you this encouragement because I remembered a short story I read many years ago, but it was one of the best I've ever read. Many of you will know Leo Tolstoy, who's most famous for his novels, like giant fat tomes like War and Peace, right? And you think, man, this will take me a few summers in a row to read through this thing. Well, he wrote excellent short stories, and I'm gonna read to you from a little portion of a short story called What Men Live By. And, and it's a story about a man named Simon who's a poor shoemaker in a village, and he goes to town to try and buy some sheepskins because his family gets cold in the winter and is uh, very, very poor. But as he's walking home, he notices there's a, a shrine by the side of the road, a Russian Orthodox church, and he sees something white there and he realizes it's a man who's naked. And he thinks he's a dead person, but he gets closer and the man looks up and looks him in the eyes and he realizes this is a man shivering in the cold. So Simon keeps walking past. And then Simon comes to say to him, so Simon, what are you doing? And he goes back and he helps the man, brings him into his home, gives him his job in his uh, workshop. But here's what I, I, I want to tell you about. And if you haven't heard the story, then plug your ears because a uh, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> it turns out that this man he rescues named Michael is actually an angel. God had cast him out of heaven, made him a man because he disobeyed God. And God said, remain a human being until you learn something, until you learn what men live for. And so he, he lives with him for many years to understand human beings better. But this is how uh, the story comes to an end. It says this, And the angel's body was bared, 
and he was clothed in light so that the eye could not look on him, and his voice grew louder as though it came not from him but from heaven above. And the angel said, I have learnt that all men live not by care for themselves but by love. I remained alive when I was a man, not by care of myself, but because love was present in a passerby, because he and his wife pitied and loved me. All men live not by the thought they spend on their own welfare, but because love exists in them. I knew before that God gave life to men and desires that they should live. Now I understood more than that. I understood that God does not wish men to live apart, and therefore he does not reveal to them what each one needs for himself, but he wishes them to live united and therefore reveals to each of them what is necessary for all. I have now understood that though it seems to men that they live by care for themselves, in truth it is love alone by which they live. He who has love is in God, and God is in him, for God is love. And the angel sang praise to God, so that the hut trembled at his voice. The roof opened, and a column of fire rose from earth to heaven, and Simon and his wife and children fell to the ground. Wings appeared upon the angel's shoulders, and he rose into the heavens. And when Simon came to himself, the hut stood as before, and there was no one in it but his own family. How wonderful these words are. It seems to men they live by care for themselves, and in truth it is love alone by which they live. Do you understand? Here, Simon grew and understood something about himself because he lived with this man who turned out to be an angel. One of the great gifts God gives us is that we come to understand who we are when another person takes responsibility for us and says, I will be committed to loving you. That's what's great about parenting, about marriage, about friendship. You see not only yourself through your own eyes, you see another person who's committed to speaking the truth to you, to build you up and to encourage you. And you become a better person as a result. But it starts when you take the responsibility. I will be the first one to encourage. I will be the first one to take responsibility for you. How wonderful it would be if in this church each one of us said the same thing. I will be the one who takes responsibility to bless, encourage, and build up the person who sits next to me. What a gift to this community and the world we would be. But not just that, what a gift we would find we live with because the people we gather with each Sunday so committed to us will be the people who help us understand better who we are and how we can better live the most satisfying life there is, the satisfying life of following Christ and longing to be more like him. What a gift Christ gives us, the gift of sacrifice, not just a burden, but a joy.